Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Osuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen. I'm Jerusha Klemperer, the host of What You're Eating, a podcast from foodprint.org. We're back this fall with all new episodes to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We'll continue to uncover problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help create a better world through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. Have you been wondering why people are drinking oat milk instead of cow's milk? Or curious how you're supposed to choose which eggs to buy when there are so many to choose from? Or frustrated by the amount of plastic packaging your food comes in? Or wondering what labels to look for to know which food is best for the environment? From practical conversations with farmers and chefs to discussions with policy experts on the barriers to a just and sustainable food system, What You're Eating covers everything from the why to the how. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along every other week for new episodes and more answers to the questions you have about what you're eating. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a way to belong, a way to look to the past, and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan-Mussing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome to Taste of Place, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. James Chamut. In Kapit, my name is Anna Sulan, or Anna Sulan, child of James Jamut. Or if you knew me as a kid, it is simply Sulan. Returning home from those in diaspora often feels like moving through a space that shimmers and shifts. For me, my name changes. The way you pronounce Anna is different. And even then, I'm very rarely known as Anna or Anna in Kapit. And through this change of a name, the words that sit differently on the tongues of family, I become someone different. But as you shift into this identity, linked so closely to childhood, it can be jarring with your surroundings. We remember the homeland as a space that is static, fixed in time. But of course it changes. New roads and shops spring up, and your favorite ice cream place closes down. The longhouse is cable TV, and everyone is wearing H&M. Home is both familiar and alienating. In this episode, Homecoming, we travel to Kapit, a market town in Sarawak, Malaysia, on the island of Borneo. It is the nearest town to where my family's farm and longhouse are, and therefore it has become the answer of convenience for every minority's favorite question, where are you from? We came here to speak to pepper farmers, to take part in longhouse activities, and to explore centers of food, like the Cuppet Marketplace and a Luxa Cafe, 
all in order to paint a vivid picture of life in Sarawak. I also came to reconnect with home, to find belonging after my father's death and the separation that COVID enforced, and remind myself why and how Sarawak pepper captured my heart and imagination. On the streets of Kapit, Iban is the language of the people. For me, listening to Iban is the most comforting thing I can think of. The rhythms of the word reside deep within me, a memory of my childhood. I no longer speak Iban, bar the essentials, eat, drink, sit, and importantly, already. Because no matter how much I want to eat everything, there will come to a point where I can't fit any more in. And to say makai is much better than saying I'm too full or I can't have any more. Everywhere I go, people will ask if I still speak Iban, especially if they remember me as Sulan. I reply, I no longer speak Iban. The sentence brings me sorrow and longing. It is my nostalgia wrapped up in words. But I am always amazed at how much I am accepted and never questioned. I am treated like I am from Kapit. I am always Iban, existing as both insider and outsider. In my PhD, I wrote about how the Iban traverse and navigate space in a way that is without boundaries, but rather as an expansion, and that home can grow, that migration is not simply leaving one space for another, but that home is part of the diaspora. This is an idea of expanding spaces and opens up the possibility of a dialogue between spaces. The Iban Longhouse has an external veranda, a communal area that spans the entire longhouse, the village. It is called the Tanju. This approach to space means that no matter how far you travel, you never actually step off the Tanju. The anthropologist Soda Roji described the Ibans as agents on the move, and this sense of agency and movement has allowed me to hold multiple identities in one hand, allowing them to exist together. I don't exist in a liminal space. I'm not caught between two places of culture. I am just Iban and Sarawakian and British and a New Zealander and a Londoner. Although it has been agreed by several aunties over a morning coffee that I look more Iban than white. So that is the official status. This trip home was complex, as I hadn't been back since 2019 when I visited with Mandy. During that time, a pandemic had happened, which took my uncle and aunt, who lived in Kapit, as well as my father. And so I was navigating a space of family and childhood without the usual anchors. What is home without the people that make it? But it was also the sharpest realization of how quickly changes happen. It might have felt like the world had stopped because of COVID-19 and because I hadn't been able to visit. But of course, market towns in the Borneo interior will continue to grow, just like my neighborhood in London changed in those three years. To get to Kapit, you fly from Kuching, the capital of Sarawak, to Cebu, a small riverside city. Then a three-hour express boat to Kapit, which is like a large bus going upriver. People bring an assortment of goods to bring home, which are piled up in the aisles or on the roof of the boat. I've always come to Kapit via boat. As a child, I remembered they would play Chinese action films in the cabin, and I was fascinated by the stunts. 
You look out the window and you see the longhouses passing by. With each year, more and more longhouses would be built with concrete that were then painted in bright colours, with less and less longboats and more compact speedboats at the jetties as time went on. This time, we drove. I tried to organise an express boat, but they don't really run anymore. Not since the road was built in 2020. It sounds silly, but the shock of not being able to take the river really shook my understanding of Kapitan home and of my relationship with Srawak. It is a space where rivers are the lifeblood, the central identity of life. I know how to get back to my family farm by the river. Kapit sits on the Rajang River, which flows all the way to the South China Sea. You go up the Rajang River, turn right at the Balai, then Mejong and finally Majiao, where the farm sits at the mouth of the Majiao River. Because of this new road, travelling on the river will become a thing of the past. But driving through the landscape, I saw new things. I saw farms dotted with pepper, which were bigger closer to Cebu. I saw farms that had a more commercial organisation than the longhouse farms I was used to seeing, which seemed to be growing cabbages. And the roads were busy. When we got to Kapit, new shops lined the waterfront, expanding the once small downtown strip that used to run from Auntie Pei's Luxa shop across the express boat terminal, the petrol station, the market, and to the end with my dad's favourite noodle shop. Now there is a new park, many more blocks of shops, and the express boat terminal is no longer the hub of activity. To assist me with my interviews on this trip, I had a great Kapit team. My name is Indrana Anja Intai. My name is Florence Anak Stanley Mading. Adriana works for my cousin Kudi, and Florence is actually my cousin as well. I am Ramli Likong from Kapit. Hello, my name is Laban Jaun. I stay in Kapit. I'm consular for Mujong area. Ramali works with Kudi too, and Labang is a local councillor who is also related to me through my grandfather's side of the family. Writing about foodways is more than just writing about how ingredients are farmed and the route it takes to get to your plate. It is also about the people along the way who farm it, process it, ship it, sell it, cook it, and of course, eat it. In Kuching, the night before this trip, I ate with friends at a restaurant called Roots. The chefs had t-shirts that said, no farmers, no food, on the backs. Because of the way the open kitchen was positioned, their backs were to the dining room most of the time, and they were framed at the top of the dining room behind the bar. So no farmers, no food, was a focal point. We were also back in Sarawak for Harvest Festival, Gawai, which is when the indigenous people celebrate the rice harvest. This is the equivalent of New Year's Eve where you see out the old harvest and look towards planting a new harvest and welcome in a new year. There is anticipation and looking to the future. And that first night in Kapit, we went to a gawai of a family friend. There was drinking of tuak, the local rice wine, and eating wild boar. Offerings to gods were made, and a traditional chant was done by the bards. This is the telling of the Gawai story, and three male bards spend the whole night telling the story and chant. I was asked to dance to Najat, which I did very badly. Like the Iban language, I used to be quite good. But at the very least, I give everyone a laugh at my attempts. Many people have a story to tell me about when I was a child. Selfies were taken and uploaded to Facebook. My Iban name is most used, and I get introduced 
as my father's child, Anasulana Nakjamut. It is so deeply emotional to be back in the fold in the chaotic Gawai festivities that are so familiar to me. And I begin to think I started this project as an excuse to come back and drink tiger beer in the hot, hot cup at heat and be swept up in the crowd of people. And maybe that is the point of this. Observing the scene, I'm reminded yet again that these are the people that grow the pepper that seasons my life, our lives. The pepper that allows me to wax poetic on this podcast about systems and flavors and time and space. It all starts from here, from the people celebrating before me. The next day, we headed out on the road again to Labang's Longhouse. Longhouses are the central hub of community life in Sarawak. They are where all the families in the village live, commune and rest in between working their family-owned farmland. We visited Labang's Longhouse. He is related to me via my grandfather and his wife is related to me via my grandmother. Therefore, this longhouse is considered family. The night before the trip, it had rained heavily, thunder and lightning directly overhead. The river highways of Rejang and Bale were more awash with soil from its bank than usual, and the rush of new water in the system stirs up the riverbed. Under the jungle's undergrowth, you can catch glimpses of the clay-like soil that is dominant in the mountainous landscape in the Kapit area. But it's the river after the rain that really lets you see what the soil is like here, a thick, red-yellow-brown. The water has the colour and viscosity of a frothed-up tetaric, which is a milky tea poured back and forth between cups to mix. In the smaller Tribune rivers, which are also looking less clear than usual, dark grey slates of rock interrupt the flow of the water. The drive is steep and hilly. The road is based on old timber trails that have been tarmacked over until they haven't. And we're bumping along current timber trails. It is a little hairy at times, but it's a pathway deep into the interior. Pepper gardens dot the hillsides, often on precariously steep slopes. I can't even imagine how they are accessed, and they sit remotely from anything else. Little squares of sticks encased green vines. We stopped at the farm of a relative of mine, Subang, who is part of Labang's longhouse, although she predominantly lives at her small farm, 20-minute walk down the road from the longhouse. We crowded into the front room of her farmhouse, six in the group with me, plus her husband, her daughter, son-in-law and her grandson. The farm cats come in to say hello, stretch themselves in front of the fan or approach each of us for scratches. At one point, one little grey cat became very interested in the microphone, nuzzling up to it. The farm is mainly pepper farming and then fruits like pineapple and vegetables such as tapioca and long bean. There is fishing in the river, in a small river nearby, which is almost every day, and hunting for wild boar. They also have paddy, rice fields, which need daily care. How often do you go hunting? Sesuai berapa kali dek nyok koyak dek? Almost every day. Begi gak? Almost every day. Almost every day. Okay. And fishing as well. Where is the stream near? Close here? There's a small river in front of the house. It's not the same. It's not And fishing every day as well? Almost every day. Almost every day. Some of the rice, vegetables, and fruit that are grown are sold to the timber camp not far from the farm. This is the main source of income for Subang's family. She lived with hunting and fishing just only for daily life. So that's the fishing and the hunting is not for selling? 
just for daily life. No? But the rice and the vegetables and the fruit she can sell. She can sell it on the camp. And she does do the pepper, but the pepper she doesn't do so much now because it takes a lot of time and the price is not so good right now. And she has about 60 vines, pepper vines, is that what she was saying? Yeah. Mm. 100 lah, 100. 100, okay, okay. Adriana translated my questions to Subang and her family. The answers were not straightforward, as farming is very rarely a linear process. And the questions were discussed in depth, with Labang and Adriana helping with translating it all to me. This exchange mirrors the other conversations I've had over the years with Iban farmers. There was always lively discussions, as notes are compared and a complex picture is painted. It is very fun and feels slightly chaotic. Everyone has an opinion, and it is wonderful to hear all the different thoughts. In summary, the situation with Subang's farm in June 2022 is that they aren't producing a lot of pepper at the moment, as the prices have dropped. Therefore, it isn't worth tending to a large pepper garden, which needs daily attention. As Labang explains, you can't leave pepper vines for a week. Kapit is the closest collection centre. It takes about a week to process the pepper to get it ready to take to town. So the collection centre for pepper is in Kapit. So how often would you take the pepper from here to Kapit? Once for one month. Eh? Because it's so many process before they say to Kapit. It was explained to me that the pepper can be stored until the prices rise again. Subang and her family currently only make black pepper. White pepper fetches a higher price, but is much harder to process and takes more time. As we walk to the longhouse, we walk past Subang's pepper drying in the hot midday sun. We all then made our way to the longhouse where a mering was performed. This is an offering ceremony to the gods. After visiting the pepper farm, we've come to the longhouse and we're just setting up a mering. Mr. Amelie is doing the mering. So he's putting together all the little bits. The purpose for this was to welcome us to the longhouse, bless the spirits. It consists of three types of rice, divided into eight portions, popped, cooked rice cakes, glutinous rice, then smoked banana leaves, eight eggs, and blood of a chicken mixed with tuak, the rice wine. This is assembled in a shallow bowl, and a live cockerel is waved over the bowl and over all our heads, whilst a blessing is made to the gods. We then had lunch. We ate beef rendang, which is a dry curry, rice, bamboo shoots, and chicken broth cooked with a local aubergine, or eggplant, which I can still taste so clearly as I say this. The aubergine is orange in colour, sweet, but with this bitter ending and aftertaste. I love it. After lunch, we headed to the river where a new fishing program has been established with the aim to build up fish reserves to sustain the longhouse and neighbouring longhouses and farms. This river is considered a virgin river as there are no other longhouses or dwellings upriver. It is incredibly beautiful and clear, but extremely noisy. You hear the fish coming out to eat and the buzz of the insects is almost deafening. The next morning, we go for breakfast at a noodle cafe where they make noodles by hand which are all sitting, freshly made, on a back table. This place looks exactly the same as it did when I was a child. There are cabinets running the length of the shop, with knickknacks on display, 
There are photos of the family who own it, plus people from town, including my dad. There are posters of the protected Sarawak jungle animals on the wall that I'm very sure I remember from when I was five. There is a pepper shaker of ground white Sarawak pepper on each table. I order coffee, which is hot coffee with sweetened condensed milk. It's important to stir the milk in to get the rich, sweet flavours. And a plate of fried dry mee or noodles with a bit of gravy, which has a deep, smoky flavour from the wok. Here I speak with Robert, who has been a family friend for years. He worked for my dad and is in local politics. Hello, my name is Robert Liban. I'm from Kapit. Robert spoke to me about a fishing program, the Tagang system, which is about environmental and indigenous knowledge preservation. It is being rolled out across the area for the indigenous communities this far upriver. As I have mentioned earlier in the season, pepper farming is part of a farming system and farming culture. And as Subang spoke about the day before on her farm, there are things at the longhouse farm or hunt that are just for the village. What Robert explains to me is how this fishing program is both about sustenance for the river communities and to protect the indigenous fish. The system tagang may be good for the local and rural people to maintain, sustain the life uh, aquatic in the river. In Kapit, they have so many indigenous fish, maybe like Purao, Tengada, Kulong, they say Kulong, there's fish from the Batuan, the rock. We hope uh, this system, my generation, uh, they can know which empura, which labang, which, which baong. Uh. Although freshwater fish are now grown in ponds and farmed, river fish are most desired as they feed on wild fruits that fall into the river. The empura fish is the most sought after, which is currently fetching up to 600 Malaysian ringgit, or just over 100 pounds per kilo. Other indigenous fish are sema, temengat, and labang. It is only recently that in-depth studies of fish in the area have been done as it's such a difficult area to access. Cuppet fish are so sought after that restaurants in other towns and cities cite the fact they have cuppet fish on their menus. No one is allowed to fish within the area of the designated fishing programs to allow the fish stock to mature. It has been a very successful program and has run mainly upriver, particularly around my family farm area where the water is very clean, which is good for the fish. The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed, Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. After breakfast, we went to the Terrasang Market, Kapit's focal point. It was pouring with rain, the heavy, heavy tropical rain that is only seen to be believed, as it poured down the side of the building that the market is in, hitting tin roofs. The market is a two-story building, The ground floor, with the sides open to the elements, is where the market is housed, with shops above. The market has everything you could want for the household, from produce to a wet market, plastic bags and items for blessings to the gods. As we walked around the market, I met a number of people who knew my dad. One person we met as soon as we entered was a woman from Majau, the same river my family longhouse is from, 
Her stool was set up with tables on three sides around her. Her glasses perched on her nose and her grey hair loosely tied in a ponytail. She is of my grandmother's generation and a few inches shorter than me. In the spirited conversation and rush of Iban and attempts to translate, I didn't catch her name. But she told me she'd met my sister Rachel and that she missed my dad. Although originally from Majau River, she now lives in Kapit. I asked her how often she comes to the market and what she sells. She comes to the market every day. The produce she has is from farmers who sell her their goods. On her stall was ginger, cucumber, dayak, aubergine, the eggplant which we had eaten the day before, but an array of different types from orange and yellow to greens and purples. She also has mushrooms, chilies, tuak, and items for using in a mering blessing, much needed at this time of the year for the Gawai festivities. And a bark which acts as a natural citronella. So if you burn it, it smells. Is this part of like offerings as well? No. No. Just make it... Oh, keep away the insects. I see. Oh, very good. <laughs> okay. And the bad spirits. Insects and the bad spirits, the same yeah. thing, yes. <laughs> we spoke to another seller who also comes every day and gets the farm produce from longhouses in the local area. Her stall had similar things, including pineapple and lemongrass, and she explained to me how to make kasambabi, fermented pork. The recipe got a little lost in translation, but the point was she had all that was needed to make it and that it was an important dish to know and to make. Most of the stalls are owned by women in this part of the market where produce is sold. I saw Chankok Manis, the local name for a leafy vegetable grown throughout Southeast Asia. I really love it. It is usually stir-fried with a little bit of salt to take out the bitterness. I also spotted my absolute favourite, Midin. This is an indigenous fern and it only lasts a few days after harvesting, so you need to eat it quick. It is usually quick-fried with garlic or with blachan, fermented shrimp paste. On some stalls, there were also produce from more commercialised farms closer to Cebu, such as cabbage, a vegetable I don't remember seeing last time I was here. But then, I was less forensic about my wandering around the market in previous visits, only focusing on what was important to me as anchors of my memory and place. Previously, I would only pick up things I knew I could only get here and bring them back to Kuching. The market is set up into long strips of stalls, tables creating walkways that run from the riverside up. The market feels chaotic, although a little less than previously. The rain keeping people away and COVID restrictions had only just lifted and everyone was still feeling their way through. I felt aware that people were looking. We were a group moving through. I had on headphones with my mic out in front of me. And then there was a recognition from people of who I was. I stood out. But I think when you do go back home, you always do. The way you dress and navigate space is always going to be different from a local. The smell of the rain, the earthy aroma of vegetables, the whiff of the fish across the other side of the market, and the smell of frying oil with hints of sweetness from the dessert sections in the centre of the market, all mingle together. It is a lot of sensory information, but I relish it. We wandered over to the middle section, where the hot food is. It is mainly sweet treats like pandan pancakes with desiccated coconut, or Iban fried dough snacks that have a pleasing crunch. And as the rain continued to pour, and we contemplated what to do next, 
we made our way to the fish section. So what fish are these ones? This uh, come from the local fish here. The name is Canlabang. Canlabang? Okay. Uh, the same with my name. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Labang fish is a white fish with reddish pink fins and tails that can be between 4 to 10 kilos. This one is 700 for kilo. For one, one kilo, kilo. wow. One kilo. This one's at the front? Ikan bawang. So that's like the catfish. Yeah. And it's still, it's still breathing. <laughs> Only in Sarawak rivers. So they're still breathing. Oh dear, one of the fish has absolutely moved and now on the catfish table. Ah! Ah! And they've fallen off. <laughs> they've wiggled themselves off the table <laughs> behind us in the pouring rain. The last stop of our tour of Kapit, and something I'd been looking forward to since I landed, was to the Laksa Cafe at the other end of the old town. The pink walls behind Auntie Pei's laksa stand beautifully frame her spot. And it is where we stop for a late morning lapa before heading home. On the table are little bowls of boiled eggs and little parcels of sticky rice wrapped in banana leaves, which Auntie Pei is making fresh as we sat. The start of the interview begins with a big discussion amongst everyone about how I don't speak Iban anymore. Hello, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> I tell her I was here in 2019 with Mandy and that she told us about the 100-year-old urn for making hot drinks. She doesn't remember. She says she sees a lot of people. Fair enough, her cafe is always busy. She tells me that she's been cooking for 24 years and she is at the cafe from 6am to 5pm. One side of the cafe is her laksa cooking area where she makes enough daily for 30 portions. Then there is stand for making drinks and the spot where the parcels of rice are made up. She explained to me that she makes her laksa broth from bought laksa paste, which feels like a disappointing fact for me. But this is my nostalgia at play, pointing to a romantic view of local cooking and cooks. And I realise that over the last decade or so, there have been some really, really good laksa pastes made. I bring them back to London every time and look forward to trying whatever new one I find in the supermarket. So why would you make it fresh when you can buy exceptional paste already made? Each copy TM and Kapit that sells laksa makes it differently. There is the way you add coconut milk, the ratio of other ingredients, and then there are toppings that are different everywhere. Auntie Pei uses a lot of offal in her laksa, which is very unusual in Sarawak. Now in London, I make laksa one evening using my paste I brought back. The packaging is a no-nonsense design. White paper with a bird logo and a list of ingredients stuck to the outside of a clear plastic packaging so I can see the rich, deep, brown-reddish paste. The paste is pre-made, the noodles are store-bought. I boil water and pour them over the very thin rice noodles, letting them soak till cooked. I bring the paste to boil with some chicken stock. Then strain it so that all the grainy textures of the thick paste is gone before adding in the coconut milk and gently warming it up. The smells fill the kitchen and the Sarawak pepper that is so key to this paste make themselves known, woody and aromatic. 
I take the noodles out of the water and place them in a deep bowl. I pour the thick, gravy-like broth over the noodles and add leftover chicken, shredded, and a squeeze a wedge of lime. And this laksa is absolutely delicious. During the ritual of making my favourite dish, one that is so familiar with me, I'm brought back to the tanju, the communal veranda spanning the longhouse. No matter where in the world I travel, I will always be home. Thank you very much to everyone who helped make this episode in Kapit. It was truly a communal or village project. Thanks especially to my translators, Florence, Ramali, Adriana and Labang. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Cuddlechuck, music director Catherine Yang, managing producer Marvin Yeur, associate producer Quinton Lebeau, production coordinator Shabnam Fadosi, production assistant Maha Saned, and publicist Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang and cover art created by Whetstone art director Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, on TikTok at Whetstone Media, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel Whetstone Media for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. <laughs>